How Can I Help is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. What would you do if you thought you knew someone who was experiencing anxiety or depression? Yeah, I don't know what I would do in that. It's always tricky when you get put in that situation. I think just um, let them know that there is support available for them and that, yeah, it's something that a lot of people go through. Maybe um, provide them some, like, broad, like, resources, like, on the internet and stuff like that about where they can get some help. If you're able to be someone that they can turn to and feel comfortable speaking to as much as possible, then I think you have to do that. It's also really important to know your limits and understand that you're not always going to be able to say the right thing, but it's really important just to be able to listen and hear them out. From Pro Bono News, this is How Can I Help? A podcast for people who want to help but don't know where to start. I'm Wendy Williams, the editor of Pro Bono News. Each week, I'll speak to someone who knows firsthand what it's like to live through different issues. I'll also talk to the experts, the people working on the front lines, about what you and I can do to help. This podcast is not going to solve the world's problems, but it might just give some of us the tools we need to help make the world a better place. A warning before we begin. This episode contains discussions of anxiety, depression and suicide that some people may find triggering. Feeling sad or stressed from time to time is part of being human. But for some people, they can experience these feelings intensely, for long periods and sometimes without any apparent reason. In fact, 3 million Australians are living with anxiety or depression. Much more than a low mood, these are serious conditions that can affect a person's physical and mental health make it hard to cope with daily life. So what do you do if you know someone who's experiencing depression or anxiety? In this episode of How Can I Help, we speak to Camilla Martin and Dr. Grant Blaschke to find out. Camilla is a businesswoman who has lived and worked in Europe, America and Australasia. She believes she's not the sort of person others may think suffers from anxiety or depression, but she's lived with anxiety since she was a teenager. And over this time, she's learned to build what she refers to as a mental health toolbox when her mental health takes a turn for the worse. Now she wants to share her experience to help others realise it can happen to anyone. The first symptom that shows up for me is shallow breathing. And it's a, it's a really good one insofar as if, you, if you're watching it and you're mindful of it and you catch it early, it's very fixable because I don't believe any of us, many of us breathe properly generally. So that's a really good first sign that's not too debilitating and I can, I can tackle it when I notice it. At the other end of the spectrum, it really is crippling. I am crippled with the inability to think, to see. My, my body will start shaking. I can, I can feel pulses of stress hormones being pumped out of, I guess, wherever they, I don't know where they get pumped from. And my body goes into what it's needing to do if it was in trouble. Like, I get it. But obviously, I'm not needing to fight or fly. So my whole body gets taken over by the physiological brilliance necessary if there was a threat of a magnitude that we would need to save our physical life. I can 
build up over a matter of hours, a tension that needs releasing through big sobs, it feels great. And if I don't get the tension out, and sometimes sobbing is the best way, it will never go until I do, unless I go on a really big run or a really big swim or dance around the kitchen for an hour. I've got to get it out somehow, and sometimes one of my symptoms is a big old sob, and I'm happy in that it needs to come out. It's amazing to see all of the little coping mechanisms you've got. And I really want to come back to that because I know you've talked before about your mental health toolbox and I'm really keen to hear what's inside it. But one thing I was keen to pick up on is you talk about, you know, you've been dealing with this for a long time. And I was wondering if you could just take me back, I guess, to when you first realized that, I guess, you had anxiety as opposed to just feeling out of sorts. I think the most literal time was exams so from as early as I don't know 14 15 whenever my school system started to have that exam type set up that would be my first real manifestation of my symptoms I got a sense that my response was excessive to the average whatever that means certainly my friends didn't seem nearly as heightened as I did I would sob and panic when I was trying to revise and I'd be up so late at night panicking thing I've got to keep learning I've got to keep learning and and for my mother I reflect my mother would come in and see me in a dreadful state and just not know what to do and you mentioned your mother there I mean did your friends and family know something was going on certainly there was an, a sense that something was wrong but it was still then this is 30 40 years ago it had to, there had to be a sort of reason for it for people to either be able to talk about it if it was seen as um, not, not allowed to talk about uh, or to make sense of it. My sisters and I are all very open, comfortable, confident, and some close friends as I was a teenager I'd sort of confide in or they'd come to my house or they'd get a sense. I never felt ashamed to talk about it. It was more when was the right time and who was the right person. But also when you're a child, you don't even know what's normal or not normal. So you didn't know it was something to even ask about. So it was really, everyone meant well, but it was messy. And just picking up on that as, you know, the point of this podcast is really empowering other people to know how they can help. So I'd love to pick up on what were the things that people did just that meant well, but just were not helpful at all. And then what were the things that really did make a difference for you? It feels like, as best I can remember, no one seemed to ask me what I needed or what I wanted or what did I think or I don't remember anyone ever asking me yeah, what might I need. Now, I may have had no answers, but there was definitely no uh, inquis in inquisition. And that would be my biggest take out of all is as early as possible, finding out with com compassion and no judgment what's going on for the person rather than saying, psychiatrist for you, you must see your father every two weeks because they're divorced and seeing him is important. There was some very poor judgments made by people who did their best. But as best our systems were set up, people tried to intervene. 
And we know the maturity and the sophistication of understanding mental health is growing all the time. So in hindsight, they'd probably look back and go, wow, now I look at what we did there, that that wasn't helpful. So I try and give people lots of grace and compassion that they did their best, but it, it cannot go on like that. And so if we take that as a jumping off point, the conversation has changed in the last few decades for the better. People are more familiar. So in this current day, do you have advice for people who who can support their friends or family? The best advice, and I was lucky to receive some myself, is to keep bugging the people you love, as long as it's with love. We have got every medium available to us now, albeit in person's a little challenging. You know, keep checking in on them. And so long as you're just check your motivation is love and not judgment. That's actually the first job for all of us. And I had to work through my own judgment and I still do. So check your own judgment first. I think that's our job. Even if you don't understand how any of it feels, just check where your own compass is at with thinking less of someone. And if you have that, my first suggestion is if you have that judgment, which is not, doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's just, we need to adjust it is, is think of some of the symptoms I've talked about and think of them as physical ones. We've got better at thinking that way. If you saw someone you love with a black eye, if you saw someone in a, in a, with a leg in a cast, you'd be all over holding their hand. How can I help you? What happened? What do you need? Blah, blah, blah. If, if, so the first thing I suggest is try and switch any judgment you have or misunderstanding about it because you're not familiar to, to a physical ailment. And for someone you love, I would only assume you have only compassion for them. Then operate from that place. And the other thing is really assume they have agency, assume the individual has their own agency. Your job is not to fix it. It's not possible to fix it. And there's a degree of fixing that will be done by the professionals. Don't expect yourself to solve these problems. That's not your job. Your job as someone who isn't a medical profession is to just love without judgment. Please keep bugging them with various means, you know, texting, phoning, email, socials, whatever. Be mindful, though, of not asking them to do anything. Because when I'm in such cognitive overload, I'm unable to do anything. But if I hear someone saying, I'm thinking of you, you know, I'm here, you can reach out, that might be all I need that day. And then there are times where you can ask a question. When the person seems more themselves, then you can ask the questions that demand some or expect some response from them. What do you need? Can I come with you to the doctor? And offer help that you can offer without ever thinking you're supposed to fix it, do something about it. That is not the job of loved ones, which is great because then we can take the pressure off. No, that's some really good advice there. And actually, you mentioned a couple of times that the professionals, your loved ones, were not professionals. But in terms of professionals, did you at what point reach out to your GP or your doctor or psychiatrist? And and what was that experience like for you? I got fairly lucky fairly early on, I think, because the the ultimate window of opportunity where I felt allowed at last to be vulnerable was when in 2007, when I lost one parent overnight and then I lost another parent overnight within 18 months and I was in my early 30s, mid 30s. And fortunately or not, bereavement is is one of those that's kind of not judged and is okay to to need help with. 
so that was my window to to my anxiety was worse than ever and no surprise I had underlying anxiety and then these big events come so it was as if I could go under the banner of bereavement and then it was a bit of a trial and error because if your normal GP is good at specializing in a certain field but don't specialize in mental health well they're just going to do their best but that's not their specialty so you do have to keep trying to find the specialist you need. And that's the biggest support family and friends can give is, is helping the person keep um, at it to find the right fit. Because also at different stages in my life, different medical professionals have been a different need for me. And yeah, make sure you sort of fight your corner. Again, let's assume all medical professionals mean, mean um, well but you know you better than anyone else. So what I will do is I will write down, before I go to any appointment, I will write down what I want from that appointment. And I'll write down symptoms or I'll write down, I'll just own the appointment, I'll own the meeting. Because they'll do their best, but I want it to get a certain outcome for me. So I will prepare just like any meeting, more important than any work meeting, actually, it's my my whole health and wellbeing. So I'll prepare for a meeting based on what I understand their job is. And that is so powerful in getting far more out of that time and money with that professional. And if we return to some of the points you were making at the beginning and you've made throughout, you have this mental health toolbox. This is something you've been dealing with now for a long time and you've learned what works for you. Can you tell me a little bit more about what is in your toolbox? So the frivolous stuff will be watching a stream of funny dog videos on YouTube. You know, that just makes me laugh. And and this is not a pity party, but joy and laughter in my house as a child just wasn't really a thing. So I've had to learn. I've had to learn that that's allowed and it's not, it's not a waste of time. We know that laughing is good for our body. So funny, silly things. I get better and better at seeking advice about physical well-being, knowing it's a massive contributor. And I will periodically go to the experts to remind myself of my physical well-being toolkit. So it might be a physio one time, and then I went to a nutritionist 10 years ago to check about that, and then a yoga teacher. So I keep an eye on and keep it fresh, my physical well-being. Walking has become hopefully a thing that we'll all do more of because of lockdowns and such. So there's all those common things we've heard about. The one thing, I guess, if I had to pick one thing, it would be sleep. I have such a respect for sleep I didn't have before. And I'm sure as you get older that your physical needs for sleep change too. But if I haven't slept well through the night just one night, I will do anything to make sure the next two or three nights I sleep well. I won't do alcohol. I won't do caffeine. I won't watch stuff till late. I will make sure my hygiene, sleep hygiene routine is because that to me is the most debilitating and the fastest to catch me out. At the deeper end of the spectrum, meditation has been my absolute savior when I want to train my mind to choose how it responds to external stimuli. For the worst of all challenges or triggers is the negative self-talk, which is on my symptoms as a, as a, real, a real killer. The negative self-talk, I watch it now and I catch it early. So that's where that, at that 
deeper end of the spectrum is I love investing in training my mind because then I'll decide what I respond to. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your experience and your amazing knowledge that you've acquired over all of this time. And is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to add? There is so much help out there. I I encourage people with all my being to try your hardest to be brave and hold up your white flag of surrender and ask for help. As Camilla says, just asking for help can be a huge step forward. It can also be really hard. For many years, mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression were not talked about openly in the community because of the stigma associated with them. Conversations are changing, but we still have a way to go before we learn to think about mental health in the same way we think about physical health. While there are clinical definitions of depression and anxiety, in the real world, people may experience an overlap of issues which can make it hard to distinguish one from another. Symptoms can be deliberately or unintentionally hidden, or others may chalk them up to stressful events, hormones, or personality traits. Dr. Grant Baskey is a clinical advisor at Beyond Blue, a clinical GP, and an academic at the University of Melbourne, where he researches mental health, environmental health, and global health. He says there are signs people can look for. It's not always easy to approach someone that you're concerned about, um, and there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, uh, you don't want to be over-intrusive, and you know, certainly with friends and even with family, they'll go, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, what are you talking about? Um, and that's okay. I guess what I always say is use your common sense. So you might raise the question with someone and say, you know, I've noticed that you're not answering your phone anymore and that you haven't been out and that everyone's having a really hard time during this pandemic, how are you going? So you might frame it like that. Pick a good time and place too, you know, um, obviously somewhere private, a good time where people aren't distracted. Um, for a lot of people, and I think particularly men, sometimes a more of a side-to-side parallel conversation can be quite uh, a little bit less full-on than being in their face, how are you going? Um, so, you know, maybe going for a drive or a walk and or while you're cooking or doing something else and just bringing up the conversation. Um, and even if people don't respond immediately, you've sort of opened the door that you're interested. And, again, there's such a spectrum of symptoms, you know. So, obviously, if people are feeling out of sorts, particularly in this pandemic period, it's a bit hard to know what to make of that because we're all feeling pretty knocked about. You know, the recent Australian Bureau of Statistics study said that uh, 20% of us have high to very high levels of psychological distress. And I think that's true. And I think the potential for conflict high, um, everyone's just a little, got a little bit less tolerance for each other. Um, so there's that element. Bit of a caveat. I mean, very sadly and very unfortunately, we have significant suicide rate in Australia. You know, it'd be something like 3,000 people a year, which is sort of hard to believe. Ends up being about eight or nine people a day. So if people are expressing, you know, really severe thoughts, you know, at the other end, talking about I don't want to be here or thoughts of self harm, we always take that pretty seriously. And you need to ring Lifeline, for example, one three triple one four, or get along to the GP with them fairly urgently. And we're 
And we really do take those sorts of things seriously because the reality that I see as a GP and what the research tells us is these very sad, intense sort of thoughts, they actually do come and go like a wave. And we need to make sure that people are, are safe while we get in place what we call a suicide prevention plan. So heavy topic, but, you know, we're having an open conversation. I should also mention Beyond Blue's got an incredible app called uh, Beyond Now, which is a really good um, app for making a suicide prevention plan that, you know, people are having these sort of thoughts can do this with their GP or do it on their own. Now, it's very easy to talk about anxiety in the context of the pandemic because it's so front of mind for all of us. But obviously, anxiety and depression is an issue that people deal with all of the time outside of the context of this. If you do have someone in your life that you think is living with anxiety or depression, um, you gave us some tips already about how to start that conversation. But what else can you do to, to really help them? Yeah, so first thing to say is these are really common problems. When I'm teaching my medical students, I say, look, before we talk about the stats, think about your family barbecue or your friendship group. You'll know a bunch of people, possibly yourself, who's had a depressive episode or has anxiety. These are not rare things. And one of the sad things is a lot of people don't go and get help. Um, but we know from the research, and Beyond Blue's got these wonderful free documents you can download called A Guide to What Works for Depression and A Guide to What Works for Anxiety. And we got all the clever academics at Melbourne Uni to review all the different treatments, complementary, psychological and medication treatments. And it's written for the lay public, you know, with three thumbs up, you know, works really well, cognitive behavioural therapy or question mark, swimming with dolphins, maybe it works, don't know. So, you know, it's a, quite a good thing to have a look at. But if people get proper help, um, they really do get better. And the other thing I think is to say is some people fully recover and some people sort of just learn to manage their symptoms. So always be cautious that we're not too, you know, rah, rah, we're going to get you better tomorrow because I've got lots of patients that have anxiety conditions and things and they're like, I can manage this. You know, I know I've got to give a public talk, but I've got social anxiety. You know, I'm going to be really stressed for two weeks before it, but I've got, I know what I've got to do. So, you know, people start to learn to, to manage and better understand. Um, so lots of good treatments and I think um, really important. From a practical point of view, things you can do if you're talking to someone. Initially, you could... Have a look at the Beyond Blue website, of course. Uh, but there's lots of good online things. Um, Head to Health is the government's sort of main compilation of all the different online websites and treatments and things. So that's worth a look at. We've got um, the Beyond Blue forums with more than a million people chatting away online. Um, and then, of course, we've got our phone lines and Beyond Blue literally gets hundreds of thousands of of calls and we have mental health professionals. We've got a general line and also at the beginning of COVID, we set up the COVID support service, which is 1-800-512-348. And it can be really helpful just to talk to someone and, you know, they might give you some strategies or they'll direct you to a good place. Now, in Australia, we're really lucky 
because you can go to almost any GP in the country and do what's called a GP mental health plan. I think, unfortunately, one of the problems at the moment, to be honest, is with COVID, the capacity of our mental health workforce is a bit overwhelmed. And so having a bit of trouble getting some of my patients in to see psychologists. So that's where I think it is worth being aware of a lot of the self-care things you can do for yourself. So common sense things, keep up your exercise, routine, get up in the morning, get dressed, you know, make sure you keep up your exercise. Um, Online, there are some extraordinary free resources that can help you with anxiety and depression. A couple of my favourites, there's one called Mood Gym, very well researched with randomised trials that will help you identify um, the sort of negative thinking that you're getting stuck in. And also um, there's another one called My Compass. So people can do quite a lot themselves. Um, And for the more severe situations, some of the medications are useful and you can talk about that with your GP. But I'd really advise... If you're worried about yourself or worried about someone in your family, get a bit of help. It can be enormously helpful to have a chat to someone objective and just get a bit of perspective on what's going on. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's some amazing tips there that I think everybody can can get something from. But you mentioned at the very beginning that a lot of people actually don't get help or don't look for help. What are some of the barriers that are stopping people from getting the help that they need? Well, it's a mixture of things and you can sort of understand them. So some of it's, oh, I'll just sort this out myself. Sort of, I get that because we all want to just be autonomous and the idea that I have to go to a psychologist, you know, what can't I work it out myself? So there's that feeling of stigma around that. I think in the community, um, you know, some people would see it as a sign of weakness or in some families, particularly you know, some cultural groups that would see very much as a shame on the family. Um, you know, some some uh, groups in the community would have a concept of mental health very much as that severe need to go to hospital, um, sort of very severe end of psychiatry, whereas what we're often dealing with in general practice is depression and anxiety in the community. Um, And so they might have some sort of uh, unreasonable expectations or fear about mental health. I think not everyone thinks the GP would be a great person to start with, particularly people from other countries where the GPs aren't really part of the mental health workforce. It's not someone you would really go to. Then I think also there's that slightly more judgmental element or just snap out of it, you know, like can't you just get out of it like it's a choice? Um, and so there's all these sort of elements and stigma of stigma that still exist in the community. One other question I'd have is just to flip it for a second. So if in this podcast we're talking about, you know, you have a loved one, a family member, a colleague that you think is struggling with anxiety or depression, how do you support them? But actually it can be really difficult, particularly at a more severe end, to watch somebody go through that and maybe feel a little bit helpless, particularly if your loved one is dealing with a very, you know, severe case of depression. How do you support yourself when you're trying to be supportive? 
Yeah, look, we see that a lot in general practice. And I mean, sometimes we call those people carers, but they may depend, that sort of has a longer term connotation. But certainly that support person has a tough job and a really important job. You know, they're often absolutely critical for someone who is wandering through the hardest thing in their life. And, you know, this person is really just a guide for them taking through such a difficult time. But they do need to look after themselves because it is a hard time. So I think the first thing is to recognise it's hard. Manage expectations. So the thing I think is to think in organic time, not mechanical time, when people are sort of healing from mental health stuff. So I often say that very early on to people. I go, this is going to be a six to 12-month thing, right? You can try and get you better by Christmas time, like that sort of thinking. So let's just slow it all down. And it's probably going to be up and down. You're going to have good days and a few setbacks and we just take it slow. So you've got to pace yourself. It's a bit of a marathon. Keep up your exercise. Make sure you get some respite, times where you're off the hook. So times where someone else is looking after them if if they need that much care. Um, Make sure that you're keeping up with your good friends, keeping up any hobbies or fun things that aren't just related to, to caring. Yeah, and a nice way, a nice reminder that it can get better and that it can be hopeful as well. I think that's a nice, a nice thing to remember. Yeah, definitely. And you know, when you look at the stats, many of us at some time in our lives are going to have depression or anxiety issues along the way. You know, it's, they really are part of human experience. And the better you understand it, the better help you get. You know, then the quicker you can recover and also help others. As Grant says, anxiety and depression are not rare. Many of us will experience them in our lifetimes. But there is help out there, and people who get proper help do get better. Some fully recover, and some, like Camilla, learn to manage their symptoms. If you know someone who's experiencing anxiety or depression, it's important to remember it's not your job to fix them, but there are ways to support them. A simple conversation can make someone feel less alone, and you should never underestimate the importance of just being there. But remember to pace yourself. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And it's also important to look after yourself. Support is available for you too. For further advice and support, contact the Beyond Blue Support Service on 1300 224636 or visit beyondblue.org.au. If you are in an emergency or an immediate risk of harm to yourself or others, please contact the emergency services on 000 for suicide and crisis support, you can reach Lifeline on 131114 or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. How Can I Help is written and produced by me, Wendy Williams, with sound editing from Stefan Johnson and additional support from Maggie Coggan, Luke Michael and Nikki Stefanoff. If you like this episode, please hit subscribe and share it with your friends. If this has inspired you, if you have a story about a time when you've helped someone or failed to, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us by emailing news at probonoaustralia.com.au. And remember, you can visit probonoaustralia.com.au for all the latest news across the social economy.